Welcome to White Coats of the Round Table. This is Mike Asbeck. John is running late, so he actually ended up getting stuck at work, but gave his blessing for us to to do the episode without him. So maybe this will be a good episode. Maybe it'll be terrible. So let us know what you think. Uh, John is the funny man, so maybe this will be more dry. But Rick, you're going to have to uh, carry us through. So today I've got a really fun guest. Uh, it's going to be a great episode. We've got Rick Yarosh who is a PA and recently found is a co-founder. I'll uh, let him correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but is a co-founder of a really cool venture called Health Gig Jobs. And it's a opportunity for healthcare clinicians, regardless of profession, to find per diem or gig work. And I think it's a really cool concept. We know in many parts of the economy, like Uber or DoorDash, there's more and more opportunity to work when you want and, and kind of work on your own terms. But I didn't realize that this was an option in healthcare, and this is, you know, coming from someone who does a whole lot of consultant work and 1099 work. So I think today is going to be really exciting. Uh, Rick, why don't we have you start by just giving an introduction, and uh, you can make any corrections if I got anything wrong on that. No, you got it all right, Mike. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here with you. Uh, hopefully, John will uh, join us soon. Um, I mean, you, you were right. I, I've uh, co-founded, uh, it's a technology platform called Health Gig Jobs, which is a kind of, um, sometimes it's hard to even describe it. it it's certainly just, a, it's a technology marketplace. Uh, nobody works for us. We, it's a cross between like Match.com and Uber and Priceline. So the whole point of it is to allow healthcare workers, which we do verify, um, to basically find the uh, healthcare gigs that they want to do, whether to supplement their full-time job or just work uh, on their terms whenever they want to. And what I'm most proud of, and I believe we are first to market with this functionality, is uh, I don't know if, any, if you ever used Priceline yourself, but um, when you get matched to a specific gig, um, you can name your own price, how much you're willing to work it for. And then you can actually bid and counterbid, uh, just like an auction until the match is made. And once it's made, then uh, you go do the gig. And then on the back end of our platform, we actually do the financial transactions. So you don't have to worry about invoicing, you know, clinics or doctors or whatever that gig is. So big demand for that. And um, I'm really excited. We, we've got a lot of traction, a lot of momentum going on. Yeah, I have so many thoughts and uh, I'm sure we'll get into them. But even just, wow, you know, that sounds so empowering for healthcare clinicians where not only are they able to look for work on their terms or maybe work that fits their schedule, but then also be able to make sure that it's a price that's appropriate. I know so many people that are, are moving into telemedicine. I work in psychiatry, so mm -hmm. telemedicine is here to stay, even as COVID has started to recede and other, uh, you know, parts of healthcare are going away from it. We're still doing a lot of telemed and I constantly hear from colleagues that have switched over to these uh, direct-to-consumer telemedicine websites and the pay is terrible. They they didn't read the contract or the fine print, so it turns out that they're hourly and the hourly rate may be good, but they don't get paid if no patients are scheduled and there's all kinds of issues. So just the fact that uh, your platform allows the the contractor to be so empowered is exciting. But before we get into that, because I'm sure there will be a lot of time for specific questions about the platform and, and how gig work actually can happen in a healthcare system. Let's, uh, I, I'd love to hear your story, though. I, pr I presume that at some point you were a practicing clinician. And one of the big things with White Coats of the Roundtable is 
we want to just highlight healthcare professionals that have taken alternate career paths, whatever that may be. So I'd love to hear your story. Take us back to the beginning. Wow. Um, okay. Uh, I'll try to consolidate it because I've been doing this for like 25 years. So I, I'm... you can skip, you can skip birth and early childhood. We can <laughs> jump right to clinical career. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. I, I think the most interesting, the most valuable thing, uh, just to start it off, it, it almost doesn't matter, you know, what profession I, I'm in or what I would have done. I think it's come, it starts with the mindset. Um, I don't remember honestly how it, I got it or who I got it from. Uh, I'm a big fan of Tony Robbins, if you know who that is. He's a mm -hmm. big, you know, guru, personal coach. Um, so my mentality was always, even when I had a job, um, like a, my first job was a regular PA. I was a primarily in surgery. I'm a surgical PA. So, but I always in my mindset was, uh, I'm not an employee of anybody. I'm, I'm my own company and I sell my time to whoever wants to pay me for my training. So even though I was employed, and it certainly has its perks because there's some stability, some guarantees, some benefits, um, I still would come to work thinking I'm just selling my time and I'm getting you know paid for that. And I, of course, negotiated my rate, so to speak, back then. So um, the way that even healthcare jobs came to be, it's not because I just woke up one day and thought this would be a cool idea. Um, the reason why it was developed is because uh, I had a, a true, genuine need for that. So um, I think the important part of my background is, I mean, my first job was for five years. I was just a regular surgical PA. I was the first one in the, in the rural hospital in Iowa. And I was just uh, surgical assisting uh, everybody, you know, from, I, I never forget there was a day, I don't remember which one, where it started with an emergency C-section. And then I did a couple of gallbladders, then a hip fracture. And then at the end, we did a bowel resection. So it was, it, it was kind of fun. And I got used to that. And um, after about five years of that, I, I wanted to start a business. Uh, I, I wanted to empower people. I wanted to, to, to give an opportunity to anybody to find, um, you know, work on their own terms. Always been that way. So I came back to South Florida, which is where I live now, and uh, started working, you know, with the only thing that I knew, which was surgical assisting, and became an independent contractor. And I was just working for myself, by myself, uh, but it got really busy. And, um, and I started just, you know, talking to my colleagues, hey, can you cover this fracture or can you cover for me on the weekend when I'm not available? And it kind of grew very quickly. There, there was a demand. And um, at first I was having contractors. And then when I saw the big demand, I actually incorporated, started a company. And then I ended up hiring people on a salary so I can control their schedule, you know, so we could service our clients. And also had just independent contractors at 1099 that they would cover. And it kind of grew to about 100 different surgeons. And then I found that, you know, some surgeons started asking, well, can you cover, you know, one day in the office for me to see my post-ups? Uh, another surgeon would say, uh, can you round or somebody, can you find somebody to round on the weekends and I'll pay you X dollar per patient? So, it, and, I, and that's when the light bulb went off because, of course, I couldn't do it, nor did I want to, I didn't want to do any of everything. But I knew enough people and I had a pretty good reputation that I would, if not me, I would find somebody. Uh, for these doctors and uh, and they liked it because it avoided the pressure on them to hire somebody to put advertisements they just wanted to you know get something done very quickly and and everybody's happy so um so when my company grew to about 30 people it became impossible to like coordinate it I mean no coordinator could do it because if you think from a surgical perspective um, I had to figure out on, on a very quick notice, you know, who's credentialed where, with what skills, 
who's compatible with somebody. So, um, so I, I'm fortunate that I have a very good friend who is a very talented uh, software architect. And uh, we were having coffee one day and I, and I just kept being bombarded with these, uh, you know, texts and, and calls. And I said, can you build something that would kind of sort of automate it? And he said, yeah, sure. You know, and that's what I love about him because I just tell him my wildest idea and he just tells me if it's possible or not. And then he tells me what it's going to cost. And I figured, you know, I had big vision. So I figured I'll do that. And um, and then I really kind of became a dreamer because I thought I imagined this army of people who are, you know, credentialed in, in at least verified. And, uh, and Uber back then was really becoming popular and the whole gig economy became a big term. So um, I figured, you know what, this is this, I'm gonna make this a big company and, and grow it. Um, I went to business school at the University of Miami. I got my MBA in healthcare and I used my company as sort of the poster child for all the use cases there. So that was a lot of fun. And then finally, uh, I think the big pivot was, uh, because I live in South Florida, we had a big hurricane. And uh, after the hurricane, I, I got calls from people I never heard of. I mean, mostly doctors. And and there's one particular story that I always like to tell. I tell it to everybody, from from my colleagues to investors to to everybody. There was a doctor. I don't know his name. I don't remember actually anymore. Uh, who said, "Can you find somebody to go around on my like I think it was four or five patients?" And so I can try to find somebody who's credentialed there as long as they sign you know the physician center. And they, and he asked me, "What do you charge?" And I didn't know what to answer. And before I had a chance to answer. Uh, and this is a true story. I literally, I couldn't make this up. He said, I will pay you a thousand dollars to go and run on my phone. <laughs> so, and in my wildest dream, I would have asked maybe for, I don't know, a hundred dollars per patient. I mean, that already sounds really cool. I mean, I've never, never seen somebody pay that. So when he actually said that it, it, it actually turned me off. It's like uh, something not right in there. So, uh, long story short, I, we, we, we did not do any round for this doctor. But I kind of regret it because uh, later on I found out that the reason why he offered that price is because he had a contract with the hospital and he just, because of the hurricane, whatever, he just couldn't make it. So he really just needed somebody who's credentialed to do so. But that I think was the birth of what truly health gig jobs is now, where I, I realized that, you know, different, depending on the situation, I mean, People willing to get paid differently and, and and employers or doctors are willing to get paid different amount depending on their need. So just like with this COVID outbreak, I mean, people, you know, get paid some, sometimes crazy amounts. So, of course, I called my, my, my friend and said, hey, can you build me basically like a, a match.com with kind of like a price line where people can just put their price and then if it all works out, make it a PayPal so that we can process the transaction and make it very easy for everybody. And um, he just asked me, you know, what my budget was. <laughs> so, um, so, and that's how Health Geek Jobs was born. So, and, uh, and, and, and since then, I mean, I'm, I'm, I do my own gigs as well. Uh, and I also work clinically, but uh, uh, more recently because of COVID, I think it, you know, I hate to say it, I don't know if this is right or wrong, you know, you can delete it later. <laughs> so uh, it was probably one of the best things that happened uh, for you know, health gig jobs, because uh, if somebody would, if somebody gets COVID, they're out for two weeks, you know, clinics, doctors are struggling, they don't know, you know, what to do and where to find something. And, and you know, job boards cost money, recruiters cost even more money. So um, it, it was a great catalyst for our company. 
That's great. So even within that, yeah, I do have some questions because you keep mentioning credentialing. And, and when you talk about gig work and healthcare, that's the first thing that I thought of is how can you do this when credentialing can take weeks or months? I mean, right now, my clinic is adding two new providers and it, we're going on, I think, week six or seven of credentialing where, you know, that we're paying them to sit around waiting for them to be able to bill insurance. So I guess my first question with this within this is as a healthcare provider, how do you get past all the administrative barriers of credentialing people, especially if the gig work is so immediate, such as covering a COVID absence? How is that something that you guys have been able to tackle and, and provide that flexibility? Yeah, it's a great question and it's a very common question. So uh, the first, the easy answer, uh, the short answer is, at least at this point, we don't work with hospitals for the same exact reasons, because hospitals take weeks or months to get credentialed. Our primary uh, you know, employer users are, are just regular physicians that want somebody in the office, um, urgent care clinics and uh, telemedicine companies. And, and once we've launched, we realized there was a need for um, home care, home visit companies. Um, and uh, depending on the on the employer, sometimes yeah they do credential, um, but often they just want somebody, and it's not just for PAs or nurse practitioners that, that actually has to go through this insurance. Um, uh, when, once we've launched, we got we've got requests for medical assistants and for nurses um, and phlebotomists of all people. I never even thought of those, you know. And uh, more recently, uh, medical billers, healthcare, you know, claim adjusters. So it's not just necessarily for a clinical patient facing people, but also somebody that just worked in healthcare, uh, but there's still a demand for them. So, um, so we primarily focus on uh, again non-hospitals, just clinics and telemedicine companies, and um, and we do verify everybody's identity. Uh, so we we ask for government ID. We verify if, if somebody has a, a certain board certification or license. We do verify that before they become sort of active um, on the platform and be allowed to be matched with a particular gig and um and it's also kind of important to say you know what is a gig you know not everybody even understands what a gig is um for the purposes of our company when we build it uh, i figured you know and this is probably because of my surgical background mm -hmm. to me a gig is anything that's done within 24 hours um uh, in fact i've done a lot of gigs myself just so i can tell people i've done them and i know what it's like so uh, in the past, uh, you know, a doctor would basically want me to triage phone calls. I mean, that certainly doesn't require specific credentialing. He was just so annoyed by being called with the stupid calls from patients or nurses, et cetera. He just wants somebody to take the call. And he was going to pay like 50 bucks just to have a peace of mind. And if something, with one exception, said, if you get a call from an emergency room, you know, forward it to me, you know, maybe in a text, triage, triage it. And there's a plenty of apps that are HIPAA compatible, so I could do that, or I would just call them. So, um, uh, so that's a perfect use case of a type of a gig. And then, um, you know, because sometimes it could be a week or especially after COVID, it could be like a two week coverage or somebody's on vacation, for example, then we've built sort of a functionality in the system where uh, a doctor or a clinic can post, uh, you know, like a five day, you know, link chains of gigs. So it technically it's five different gigs, but they're all connected as one, I don't know, uh, one, assignment i don't i don't really call that i don't like to call that assignment because it really gets confused with you know locums tenant tenants and um so there is no assignment it's, it's entirely up to you a person can do just one day or they can agree to do all five days so yeah that that's such a great point because even as we're having this conversation i think i was thinking of gig meaning 
clinical work, you know, me, you know, locum tenums covering someone for several weeks or, or months if they're out. But it's interesting because I've gone through this in my clinic as well, where anything, but certainly in healthcare, it's most efficiently delivered at the lowest level possible. So very often we are always reevaluating processes and saying, okay, does this have to be done by a physician? Does this have to be done by a PRNP? Can we delegate down? What can an RN do? What can an LPN do? And just even your example had my wheels turning of a phone triages. So in, in my clinic, there's times where we have tasks that can be done at a lower level and potentially at a, at a cheaper cost, but we don't have the staffing model that allows us to do it. And that may result in a PA, an NP, a physician, a nurse doing a task that could be delegated down. So I can even see this as a, a huge cost savings for organizations if it allows them to bid out and still pay less than if they had a physician doing it. You know, if you could have an RN do the task, that's going to save money, even if you're paying a premium to use a service like this. So it's really quite fascinating because as we as we know, you know, the economy or free market runs on the most efficient allocation of resources. And it sounds like what happens here is you're identifying those inefficiencies and then opening those up to the marketplace to, to find a solution. That's just so exciting. I'll, I'll tell you, while you were talking, it just, it's all coming <laughs> back to me now. Excellent. Good. Uh, another true story. Uh, and, 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 you know, kind of, I go back to when I owned the, the staffing entity, you know, I sold it a few years ago, but, um, you know, as a owner of a business, uh, you know, of course, I care about my bottom line. So, yes, uh, it's a simple rule. You know, I want to be able to get, you know, the lowest sort of like the, the lowest labor to get the outcome that I'm looking for as long as the quality is maintained. And uh, always been a big fan of telehealth before even telehealth was telehealth. We did one of the first, as far as I know, I mean, I didn't do a lot of deep dive into it, but we did one of the first post-operative telehealth uh, pilot because I work with so many different surgeons and um, and I never forget uh, the very first telemedicine I uh, visit I did was through my iPhone. We subscribed to something, and this was probably 2000, uh, 2007, maybe 2008. Uh, it was a young woman that had an ACL re reconstruction, and um, you know she was doing perfectly fine. And you know, in surgery, I don't know if you know, but you know, uh, sometimes if it's a bundle payment, physicians, surgeons don't get paid for the post of follow. Uh, so as long as you know the follow-up is done correctly and and you know with all the guidelines you know it, it's perfectly fine so um so i did a pilot and i was asked to do a post-operative follow-up on this acl outpatient you know person and uh, i remember i was on my phone and she was in the walmart parking lot with a baby in the back of her car and i was just asking her typical you know post-op questions uh, if she had any issues she actually showed me her scar and kind of looked at it took a picture and uh and and i did it thinking, you know, I'm a business owner, I was going to please the doctor, but it was the patient that was the happiest because she didn't have to go to the patient's office and wait in there, et cetera. So everybody was so happy. So I knew no matter what happens with my career or with my business, telehealth is going to be a big part of, uh, you know, what I'm going to be doing. And that brings me to the point you just mentioned earlier in terms of, you know, the, the, the cheapest labor, so to speak. So I, we started to expand this telehealth care and um and then i realized that where i live in south florida uh pas are nurse practitioners which i uh, uh, which i use interchangeably um you know they wanted to, they asked they wanted to get paid 
about almost twice as much than uh, a particular nurse practitioner that lives sort of in, in the central Florida area. So, uh, and that's, it was another sort of a big sign like, well, if I can create this bidding algorithm where I don't have to even think about how much to pay someone, um, that would be a really cool thing because the output is the same. I mean, the, in fact, as far as I'm concerned, you know, she probably was the, the central Florida nurse practitioner. She was probably more qualified than the people that I knew because that's what she's doing all the time. And she agreed to do it for like, uh, I remember it was like 45% less. So, um, so that's where I just, it just kind of started to blow up. And, um, and I knew this, this is the way to go. So the other thing I, I, I think a question I have regarding gig work then is how does this work with licensure? So for, you know, nurses, PAs, NPs, physicians, pharmacists, you know, certainly there may be many opportunities for gig work, but with telemedicine, with remote patient monitoring, a lot of this may be crossing state lines. So how do you handle the the licensure issues? Right now, we, we don't cross state lines. We're going there because there is a demand and we've been asked and, and particularly a lot of nurses that have registered, um, you know, there's a compact states. And uh, so we build algorithms into the marketplace. Uh, where if they're in compact state, then you know if there's a gig in a, in a in a state, then they'll be they'll be they'll be on the drop down menu basically to be matched. But uh, it, but if it's uh, um, you know just a specific uh, you know Florida for example where I am, um, it, it's the system knows uh, it just the matching algorithm knows that uh, if the person is is registered in Florida and there's a gig in Florida, depending on the type of a gig again if it's a telehealth or you know home visit or just a physician's office or a clinic. Um, that's that's the beauty of the of the matching algorithm. It it just it, it, you know once once a, an employer or a clinic you know posts a gig, um, they will have a, a drop down menu of everybody who is, has been matched, and then um, and then another cool thing is you know a doctor has an option. They can actually name the price that they're willing to pay, like a starting bid, so to speak. Or what I actually advise them is just just leave it blank. You know, just you just see what see what the bids are, and then they actually have a they can negotiate with people simultaneously and decide who they want to uh, you know engage with. And what's interesting is that you know the cheapest doesn't mean that's what they're going to go for because they can see the profile and and again it depends what they want to do. If it's uh, if it's something that doesn't require a lot of you know clinical thinking and a lot you know low malpractice risk, etc then uh, they might go for the, just the cheapest uh, you know, um, person that's available. But often they don't. They just kind of pick who they think would do the best job. Yeah, it's so yeah. fascinating. So it, I think it's another great reason why um, nursing compacts, I think they're so far ahead of the game in terms of providers, because I know for PA, uh, physicians have the the FM, what is it, the FMLA or whatever the the cross state, but they still have to apply using the the shared application for each state licensure. Mm-hmm. It, so I, I think the future, especially with telemedicine post COVID, is going to be one where hopefully we'll see more and more states adopt um, you know code that allows out of state licensure to be identified or acknowledged. Florida mm-hmm. does it. I actually I have two colleagues that just got their out of state telehealth registration for Florida. Very easy process, completely free. You just had to go online, fill out a form, and then you're you're not licensed in Florida, but rather you just have an out of state registration for your your license in New York or whatever. But yeah, it, it uh, I think is a good example though of where having licensure in multiple states is probably a benefit. It makes you more competitive not only for gig work but even for these telehealth platforms, but it can also be very expensive to get licenses in 10, 11 states. 
Yeah, yes, and I think it, it, it really should depend on, on the, again, on the mindset of the of the clinician. I mean, if it's something they want to do as a hobby, you know, sometimes, then it's probably not worth it. But um, I think the gig economy is here to stay and to grow. I, I think we'll never go back, you know, pretty much it's a universal. No matter who you talk to, we never go back to pre-COVID days, so to speak. And, um, um, and, and I've been asked, you know, just recently, a, a lot of... Um, people that were that have registered and are interested in this type of platform uh, I notice there's a, a big section of them are just somebody who feels kind of close to being burned out or be or or having don't don't have a sense of control so to speak and uh and because gig economy is growing it's not so <clears throat> recognized in healthcare it, it's it, it, it is there I mean there's a bunch of apps but I think it's just we're you know in the early stages uh, of that and um and I think that that as depending on the person's skills and and where they are and how much they want to how much effort they want to put into it there's no doubt in my mind i mean just you, know, I would, you and your listener have to trust me there, there's certainly a way to to generate enough income from uh doing gigs that can you know exceed just being employed um but every it's different for everybody um for example if somebody wants benefits you know a common a common situation it could be a married couple where um uh, a, a young woman, a nurse, a pianist practitioner, you know, maybe got pregnant, have a baby, uh, but still just wants to work clinically so that doesn't forget her skills. And this would be a perfect opportunity for someone like that, uh, doing potential telehealth or maybe just working, you know, two half days somewhere when it's convenient, uh, doing some kind of rounds or, or clinic or, you know, home visits or something like that. So, and I think with pharmacists, by the way, um, I, I, there, there is also a growing opportunity um, I know there's some asynchronous visits where you know pharmacists can review patients' charts, uh, particularly with this polypharmacy, you know, situation. Um, they can just make their own judgments and see how they can save money on pharmaceuticals. Um, so I've been, uh, I've seen those opportunities, and I think they're only going to grow. Okay, two-part question for you. So you mentioned that that the potential is there for you know people eventually to be able to exceed their their daily day job income with with gig work and maybe this is something that down the road can become full time for people. Right now, the current users that you have on your platform, I assume at this point since it's early on in this and it's really I think uh, you're kind of on the cutting edge, especially in healthcare. Are most people on your platform doing this as a side hustle? And do you have any data on how many gigs users are getting? Is it something where most registered users are doing just one or two gigs here or there? Or do you have people that are able to achieve pretty consistent work through your platform at this stage? Uh, it, it's a great question. Uh, it, we are too early for me to really give you statistically you know, relevant data. Uh, there are... Uh, there are a bunch of people that registered which are sort of like, uh, I think almost on the standby, uh, <clears throat> where it's almost like they're in the back of their mind. This is their you know, plan B in case something doesn't work out. Um, another interesting fact is even though when I envisioned this being a PA and working closely with PAs and nurse practitioners, I just thought this is going to be for PAs and MPs. Uh, I, I mean, and, and you even designed it that way. But boy, I was wrong because once we've launched and and I you know work with I know a lot of doctors, they asking can I can I can I you get a medical assistant? An x-ray technician, an orthopedist office, they, or an urgent care clinic, they want an x-ray guy. Uh, a lot of nursing requests. Uh, not really so much for PAs or nurse practitioners. And, and my suspicion is it could be because of the, uh, again, they either want somebody in the hospital and that requires a lot of credentialing, 
or just to be credentialed with specific insurances. So, uh, but there are some gigs in like separate phone triage or for uh, potentially rounds. I actually, I pitched that to the doctors because there are some workers uh, right now uh, who are working in the emergency room at a specific hospital. So they're already credentialed and they can upload that into the system and, and it would know it. And uh, if there's somebody in the hospital that wants patient, you know, uh, wants a patient rounds or some, something to be done, uh, they'll be matched to that. But that's almost a unique situation. I think that the bigger market is, again, more for telehealth and home visits where um, if so, and also another one that just came up again, I, I it, stuff I never imagined. Attorney called uh, or, you know, actually, they didn't register. They just called because they didn't know whether it was worth their time to register. And they wanted to ask for a physician, which we certainly allow physicians to register, but we don't market to them. So we don't really have a lot of physicians. Um, and they wanted somebody to review healthcare charts, as simple as that, which to me, like, oh, that makes sense. That's kind of like a gig. So, um, and, and we actually, we have a, a nurse that is specializing in, um, in like legal review or chart reviews uh, register, but there's no gigs, uh, you know, for him yet, but it's something that we see down the line we'll be marketing to as well. So, um, so to answer your question, I guess, in a more concise way, I don't have enough statistical data yet. Uh, I, from just talking to, I try to, to speak to as many people as I can. And uh, I think for most of them, it is not currently like a, a supplement to their full-time income. It's something they just want to do uh, as a side hustle. Uh, quite a few actually like I said, work in the emergency room where they, they do wherever they work, they work like three or four days a week and they have an extra day. They just want to make, you know, five, six, you know, a few hundred dollars for whatever reason. And that's something that they want to do. So you, you already answered my second part of the question a little bit, but part two to my question was going to be, what barriers do you see if you predict that eventually the gig economy is going to take over in healthcare and it is going to be something where we can do it full time? What are the current barriers to that? So you talked about credentialing for providers being a barrier. Are there any other things that you see as um, administrative burdens or roadblocks that are preventing this from becoming um, as ubiquitous as it is for Uber or DoorDash and, you know, these things that have become just commonplace? Um, I think uh, I can tell you right now, uh, I think the biggest barrier, uh, I don't even think, I kind of know it. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the biggest barrier, at least for, for health gig jobs and, you know, for me and my team is, uh, is the trust factor. Because, uh, and, and this goes for both sides of the marketplace, that the, the, employers or businesses, they need to feel comfortable uh, that somebody that they don't know would come to their clinic or see their patient that they, uh, which I haven't, again, I haven't even thought of it, that they wouldn't steal the information, just the patient information, that they're HIPAA compliant, that they don't violate the HIPAA. Uh, and if they come to their clinic, that they're not going to steal, you know, supplies and equipment because, again, they don't know this person. And it, even though we vary, we do, you know, we do as much as we can to verify the identity, you know, we can run a background check if we need to, and then flag them, this person has a background check. It's still, you know, medicine is, is, is a relationship business when it comes to patient facing type of gigs. So I think that's a, that's a, you know, trust factor, but once somebody gets used to it, then, then it's fine. Um, and then from the workers perspective, um, and, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware of it. I'm aware of it. There's so many scammers out there trying to get your information and steal your identity. And, um, and this is just by nature of our business. We need, 
we must, we require to have your government ID so we can validate who you are, have a picture of you, and then, you know, validate your license. And a lot of people, they don't know, you know, we just started, you know, they don't know who we are. So they're, they love the concept, love the idea, but they kind of, you know, um, you know, they sometimes hold back to uh, uploading all that information. And to make it even worse, yeah, I'm just opening up completely now, um, because we do payment processing, you know, we actually require, you know, some form of a financial or banking information where we're going to send the money. Whether you, if you're a worker, I mean, we're going to deposit it somewhere. We're not going to send, you know, thousands of checks. And the same thing with the businesses where, you know, certainly the number one pushback was, I'm never going to give you my bank account, you know, to withdraw the money. So we we quickly build the functionality where they can pay with a with a credit card, you know, for a specific gig because, you know, it's not necessarily thousands of dollars. So I think that was that's the biggest factor. But uh, but it's getting there, you know, we're getting, you know, more and more people, you know, I'm kind of humanizing this whole thing and the, the videos. And so um, I think that's going to be better. And then um, and then my logic, and I think hopefully you agree with this. Um, I, I, I listen. I mean, there's a lot of information out there how Airbnb started. And now, like, Airbnb is ubiquitous. Everybody knows Airbnb. And, and I, you know, I don't know if you know, but I've, I've, you know, I've seen the interviews, uh, you know, of the found co-founders and how it worked. And and back then, if you think, you know, here's an idea, a stranger will come to your home and spend some time wherever you want. And so I figured, you know, if Airbnb could make it and and kind of went through that trust factor barrier, then, you know, I'll, I'll figure out a way how to do this with health gigs. Yeah, I'm even think, thinking about my own experience. I do a lot of consulting work in addition to my day job and i've done legal review i've done chart oh, reviews good. yeah so i've uh i'm it trying to think of you i think right now <laughs> yeah I, i'm trying to think of other stuff that i've done um i'm in talks with a, a primary care office of doing like a behavioral health integration thing so there's just so many opportunities because for me when i've done this consulting work it's generally come from relationships that i already have you know people that i know or you know local connections and the ability to open that up where, you know, if I had a profile on a website and says, here's what I'm proficient in, here's what I have experience in, here's my CV, and and then you can make those connections, I think that would be really exciting. Um, just because you may have opportunities that would never come to you if you're just relying on your clinic. I think in healthcare, it's so tough. Um, yeah. In one of our previous podcast episodes, we talk about the importance of networking. And I'll be honest, prior to starting this uh, this endeavor, I was not on LinkedIn. And just in the past six months that we've been doing the podcast, I've learned how important LinkedIn is because networking is everything. But there's people in healthcare that they go to their clinic or they go to their hospital and they see the same 15 people day in and day out because they don't change. And you're seeing different patients, of course, but there's, there's so little cross-pollination in healthcare because people just go to their little slice of, of healthcare, even if they're in a big hospital system, they may not ever interact with the administrators. They may not ever interact with other specialties. So something like this, I think just being able to increase people's uh, awareness of what's out there is a really exciting thing. Yes, yes. And, and actually you you touched on the, on the thing that I think I'm probably most passionate about. Um, I, I mean, there's, uh, I mean, it's, it's fun to to build something, you know, that people can, you know, find valuable and useful. But I think I'm most passionate about is to, you know, just empower uh, anyone, particularly in healthcare, obviously, since that's where what I'm in, 
um, to just have this, um, say, you know, sense of security, because um, you know, uh, I, I don't know, not in healthcare right now, but back in you know, 2007, 2008, when you know, when there was a recession or something, people would just be laid off, and you couldn't find a job. And uh, personally, I feel like, uh, I mean, I'm fortunate, even though I'm sort of, you know, in a in a surgical, um, you know, uh, specialty, but. You know, I'm I'm humble enough to say I can probably assist literally on any case, maybe except you know vein harvesting or transplant, um, and and that gave, gives me you know unconsciously a sense of security because you know whether it's general surgery, neuro spine, you know, I, I mean I, I don't care, I can go as suturing, suturing, and and um, and you kind of get used to it, and um, what I think with over time what. Uh, what the platform is going to do with healthy jobs, it's almost having like your virtual online resume with different kinds of gigs, which in my mind, this was my vision I'm sharing with you is, you know, let's say for me even, uh, and I did it actually. Um, I, not that I wanted to work in the emergency room because, you know, I had plenty of work, but I wanted to experience uh, just for myself, what is it like to be in an urgent care clinic? Because I heard different stories. Somebody says it's a lot of fun because you get different things and you don't, you never know what's going to walk through the door. Uh, and then on the flip side, uh, I heard there, it's very, very boring and 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 people you know hate it and, and they don't like it. But I wanted to have that. And um, and again, another true story. I went to a local urgent care clinic. Uh, in fact, it was kind of like a cold walk-in, you know, because I didn't know the owner, uh, but I did know it was a private clinic, so it was not a chain. And uh, and I just was doing my market research where I wanted to ask, uh, would you use a health gig job type of platform and allow somebody to come and do a shift? You know, if, if you're a person called out sick or, or it, this was even before COVID, actually. So um, so I just came there with, you know, to find out, collect data, so to speak, because that's what I've learned is the best thing to do. Well, guess what? The guy said, oh, my God, can you cover Saturday? <laughs> I, I didn't expect again. Best easiest I, job interview ever. Just couldn't make it up. Now, I, I and of course, I, I I was actually scared, you know, because I said, well, I've never been in an urgent care clinic, and he said, it's okay. My my MA, you know, the medical assistant, you know, she's she's been with me for twelve years. You don't have to worry about anything, you know. If, if you know, if something you're not comfortable with, you know, just send them send them to the to the local emergency room. You know, uh, now, of course, I had prescription privileges. Um, I did know the EMR, which was uh, the medical records, which was a miracle. Um, so I just it wasn't about the money, really. I just figured, well, first of all, I was on cloud nine thinking, my God, this guy obviously would be willing to accept the gig worker, you know, just walking through it. Um, and the only thing he asked for my license and, and for a resume just to see that, you know, I'm, I'm a real person, you know, with a real license. So um, so I ended up doing uh i ended up covering that shift on a saturday i don't even remember what i got paid you know it was some low ball number i don't know 55 dollars an hour he, whatever he told me i agreed because i wanted to have it on record that because i knew i knew back then this was going to be a real story i don't have to make it up i don't have to butter it up this was just how how i was collecting my data so uh, i did a few you know a few shifts but that that was the end of it uh, but that it kind of gave me, uh, you know, confidence to approach urgent care clinics, and I knew that, you know, I'm not going to have a lot of resistance. And particularly now with medical assistants, uh, had no idea how important they are. Oh my God, you know, because again, I was all my career, clinical career, I was in surgery, and I'm just working. I, I've never worked with MAs, but they're so important. They're so vital to function, you know, of any kind of clinic that I have a lot more respect for them uh, after that.
Yeah, at the expense of uh, offending the nurses that that I work with, I think our MA in my department is, oh my goodness, she does all the prior auths, she does all the scheduling, yeah. she's incredible. It's so, incredible. Alicia, shout out to you if you listen. But So, <laughs> la- last question for you, because uh, I, I think we're getting to the end of the time for the, the podcast, but sure. have you thought about education? So, the other thing that I constantly hear from nurse practitioners and PAs and from academic institutions is their difficulty finding preceptors, their difficulty finding clinical rotation sites. So as you're talking about this, one of the things that I thought of, and I know there's a lot of clinical placement services out there, but would colleges or universities be able to use this platform to to put out that they are looking for bids for preceptors? Is that a, a gig work type of thing that would fit this platform? Uh, I, I Well, first of all, we, we did, I did think about it and I discussed it with my team. It's not something we're doing right now, but we I, I do know for a fact there is a demand for that. And part of the reason is because we are reaching out specifically to academic institutions because, um, you know, uh, part of my in past life, I, I was a, a, pre, a preceptor and I actually spent two years uh, teaching in the PA program where I graduated from. So I kind of I'm familiar with the mindset of a, of a student, particularly in their, in their, you know, closer to graduation. Some of them are anxious about, you know, what job they're going to get. Others, uh, you know, they, they just, they want a specific dream job. And, um, and I always thought that, and I'm, and I, I'm, I'm going to prove it. That's how confident I am that, um, I would love for students or recent graduates to, to register on the platform. It doesn't cost anything and just try things out there's only so much you can do as a student depending on your luck and what rotation you're in and even while they're searching for their ideal dream job they still gotta put food on the table they want to be out there and gig work is is perfect and, and it's perfect for them because they get a chance to experience something in the real world and get paid for it and it's also um um i think um for from the business perspective uh, there are quite a lot of businesses that actually want and look for a new graduate, uh, and uh, it's 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 true even in surgery. Even though the popular belief is that you know surgeons want somebody with experience, well, my whole master's degree thesis was on compatibility of surgeons and uh, first assists. And there, depending on the specialty, some surgeons they don't want you know I know it all kind of assistant. They want to just. Tell them what to do so they can follow the order and they can finish their surgery. And uh, and another thing that also true, this is, goes back years ago. I don't know what it is like now. When I had my company and it started sort of be recognized, I got a phone call from like a, a workers comp company. They wanted a nurse practitioner, one in every state, like as soon as possible, so they can do just screening, uh, like pre-diabetics or, or some kind of, you know, uh, workers comp, which basically required not so much clinical thinking, but more just go through a certain, you know, chart and algorithm, ask the right questions, and that's it. And, and I thought, oh, my God, that would be perfect for, for somebody who is licensed, who at least, you know, know the terminology and, and can make some, you know, judgment um, and actually perform the work. And may, even if it doesn't pay much, it still uh, gives you experience and it gives you some clinical knowledge and it prepares you for whatever comes next. So uh, when I mentor students or I talk to students, um, especially now, I notice like on social media, they want to get paid X amount of dollars, you know, in the first year. And I tell them, look, if this is a job that, you know, if this is at least a specialty you want to be in, you know, don't worry about what you're going to get paid in the first month. 
you know, at least think of it in terms of a year. And if you feel like you're being lowballed, well, you know, me being on the side of a business, I don't know you. You can tell me what you want, but until you actually start working, I, I don't, I, I don't know whether you say what you know. You can do what you say you can do. So you can always negotiate, you know, ten thousand dollar raise, you know, retention bonus. So I always tell them, look what you're gonna make at the end of the year. If I'm gonna tell you you're gonna make one hundred twenty thousand, you know, in twelve months, but you're gonna start at ninety, it sounds yes like a lowball. But if you know what you're doing and you're pretty confident and you can actually put it in the contract. And most smart employers, it costs them a ton of money with turnover. And you always have to think of that. So if they really like you, even the first 30 to 60 days, you know, just get a $10,000 bonus and then another 10,000 and then at the end of the year, another 10,000 retention bonus. And there you got it. And you have your dream job. Everybody's happy. You made what you wanted. The, the, the business is happy because now they like you, they trust you and they, they're happy to work with you. So that's for the, you know, full-time work. And with gigs, with gigs, um, I talk to so many doctors now. It's kind of a similar uh, story where um, they they may have a full time person, but they just want you know uh, they they have a you know bottleneck or something like that, or they just don't want to take a lot of risk. So why not just come for a day or come for a week? And if we like you, they, they, there's a, there's a way that they can you know specifically request you in the future for gigs as well. If they don't like you, they find another gig worker. That's great. So why don't we why don't we wrap it up there? Uh, last thing I want to do. So generally on the podcast, we we like to talk about burnout. We like to talk about ways to have a fulfilling career. And I think uh, medicine can be all consuming. So one of the things that we like to do is talk about personal stuff to finish. So we'll we'll wrap it up with what are you drinking? What are you reading? What are you doing? Is there anything interesting, fun going on in your life that is not job, not work related, not healthcare? Oh, my God. Uh well, I, I can tell you, um, uh, I, I, I read I read a lot, uh, and I also listen to, to a lot of books. Uh, there are all nonfiction, and there's one. Uh, well, the very first book that changed my life, and also it, it was Anthony Robbins. And pretty much anything with Tony Robbins, uh, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I went to his, you know, to his webinars uh, and seminars. But there's one I just I just finished. It's called Algorithms to Live By. And it's so cool because it just it's a scientifically based, uh, you know, literature that kind of talks about how we make decisions. And it's just it's always I've been always fascinated, you know, how and why we make certain decisions, no matter what that is. It doesn't have to be work related, you know, decision to have a baby, go on vacation, what you want to eat tonight, etc. So um, so I really enjoy that. And um, I'm trying to think what's not work related because I'm so like in the in the work mode. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why we do it. We got we got to maintain that balance. I know it's almost like out of my comfort zone. <laughs> um, uh, well, I can tell you what I'm looking forward to, though. Perfect. Uh, that's um, I'm um, again. I'm in South Florida, and I miss. I want to see fall leaves. I want to see the fall. And and we just planned uh, a trip, like a road trip to like Carolinas somewhere in you know October, end of the September. I can't wait to see that. My kids never seen fall in in their life. Um, someday, maybe next year, we'll go and see the snow. But uh, but I really miss that change of season. So uh, I'm really excited about that. Looking forward to that trip. Perfect. I'll I'll, I'll uh, stick with your theme. So I, I just this past weekend, every year we do a, a father son camping trip. There's a group of about 15, 20 guys and it's a bunch of dads. Uh, it's three generations now. So that's cool. But so we did our annual camping trip and I took my two oldest boys and it was just, you know, a weekend of 
no structure, completely relaxed, no cell service. So we, we fished, kids caught tons of fish. We did lots of hiking. We ate tons of s'mores. My oldest ate 12 s'mores in one night and then proceeded to have a horrible stomach ache the rest of the night. But it was a, a wonderful weekend to unplug. So yeah, it was a very good, nature's good. I think nature is healing. So nature, the, the fall colors have a healing effect for sure. Yeah, and it's also inspiring, yeah, very inspiring. I, I mean, that, that those are the things that I I, I look forward to. And, and it's not just me, I, I, I've learned, I think this book will actually be the best way to put it. I, I've learned in the past that, you know, if if you can help someone, you know, meet their, achieve their dreams and their goals, um, it, it, you can't, I mean, I can't put it in words that you can put it in money. It's just so fulfilling. And, you know, and I think the ultimate goal, at least for me, is to have a fulfilling life. You know, you can, you can have so much money, you can have, you know, everything, but if you don't feel fulfilled, you haven't been successful in my opinion. Man, that's the perfect spot to leave it. I don't think we'll top that. Rick, thank you so much. Once again, if anyone is interested in checking out the website, it is Health Gig Jobs. I got that right? Yes, you did. Okay, yes, Health Gig Jobs it, uh, is a wonderful opportunity. I think it's just really exciting to see this, this you know, innovation and cutting edge platform, and I'm excited to see this grow. Uh, for our patron members, we're actually going to jump over, as we always do at the interviews, and we're going to continue this conversation for members only on our patron website. If you'd like to become a supporter of the podcast, check out patreon.com slash WCRT. And when we get on there, we're going to ask Rick some really specific questions about his journey and maybe things he did wrong and things he wants to have back as he's uh, gone down the road of entrepreneurship. But for those of you that aren't going to join us on Patreon, thank you for listening, Rick. Thank you for the time. Thank you. And until next time, this is Mike Asbeck with White Coats of the Roundtable. Table.